As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. Welcome to Episode 2, Season 5 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This episode, we have Carol Engel, Chris Pierce, and Myron Roth. They are experts in the industry who I greatly admire. This episode is for you if you want to gain insights on the topic of collaboration between industry and government plus science. So if you're on the brink of having to make a wise decision you're experiencing in your business or existing projects at the moment, you will learn a lot from the premier panel interview. So listen in and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you listen to season five, episode one, I summarize the future trends shared by our season four guests. For a one-on-one interview of our panelists today, please refer to Season 2, Episode 8 for Chris Pierce, Season 4, Episode 5 for Myron Roth, and Season 4, Episode 8 for Carol Engel. Welcome to the show, Carol, Chris, and Myron. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lourdes. Thank you for your time today. This is one offshoot that you can be in one room, so <laughs> I am going to take this opportunity and start asking questions. So we will start with Carol. Carol, what types of effective programs have you seen in which collaboration among industry, government, and research has effectively supported development of aquaculture businesses? Well, as you might expect, being based in the United States, my response is going to be heavily influenced by what I've seen here in in the United States. And the two that come to mind first in terms of aquaculture development that have been enormously impactful in the United States is, first of all, what we refer to as the land-grant system of universities in the United States. That is a collaborative partnership between the federal government, the state governments, and specified universities in each state in the United States, and also with industry as well, with industry advisors that drive the needs of that program. The funding supports research and extension then to address industry needs. And so the land-grant system in general and the funding to support applied research and the extension function to be the interface between farmers and and researchers back and forth, that two-way street, I think has been essential. There's one other program in the States that's also funded through the United States Department of Agriculture that's called the Regional Aquaculture Center Program where they've identified five regional centers across the United States 
these centers are designed and structured to be industry driven in the sense that farmers identify the projects and the problems that will be addressed, but the university researchers and the extension personnel all come together to figure out how to make that happen. But what is targeted in that program are needs that are brought by industry representatives in each region. And so those are the two that come to mind from the United States that I've seen tremendous impacts in which we can trace back developments in aquaculture, technological breakthroughs that grew out of that collaboration between government, universities, and and industry. Oh, thanks, Carol. I was wondering, do you think we have something along these lines, Chris, in Canada? We do. And like Carol, I'm going to be speaking based on my perspective with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And the, the biggest program we have, which allows DFO researchers to interact with shellfish aquaculture industry proponents, is the Aquaculture Collaborative Research and Development Program, or ACRDP for short. And basically, it has two broad priorities or objectives. One is fish health or shellfish health, and the other is environmental interactions. So what are the effects of the environment on the organisms you're growing? Or the flip side of that, what is the effect of aquaculture on the environment? And that is a national program. It's open to commercial growers and industry associations as well. It's probably one of the better funding programs in terms of government dollars because DFO covers 70% of the project costs and industry only has to come up with 30% cash plus in kind. And the cash contribution can be as low as 7.5%. So it's pretty good. A lot of other programs are 50-50. So the 7.5% cash contribution is really quite low. And so Basically, the farmer would come to a DFO research scientist and say, look, this is an issue that we are interested in examining, and we think it fits under the ACRDP priorities. And then the researcher would work with the industry proponent to draft a proposal and submit that for funding. And they have a national call every year. So that's one program. Another one is the Fisheries and Aquaculture Clean Technology Adoption Program, or FACTAP, which is a national contribution program. And DFO has invested $30 million over six years in this program. It started in 2017, runs to 2023, and it's basically to assist Canada's fisheries and aquaculture industries in improving their environmental performance. How to become more green? Is that getting rid of diesel generators? Is it getting rid of plastic on your farm? Whatever, but it's about becoming more environmentally friendly. We also have the Ghost Gear Fund, which encourages all Canadians to take actions to reduce plastic in the marine environment. They've supported over 49 projects over the last two years, and that's about getting rid of ghost gear in the ocean. So abandoned nets, traps, cages, those sort of things that are collecting wild animals. And so that's an environmental concern. And I think I will pass it on to Myra now. I'm hoping he will talk about BC Shrift, the British Columbia Salmon Restoration and Innovation Fund. But if he doesn't, I can come back to that one as well. So over to you, Myra. Well, take it uh, away, Myron. Okay, well, thanks. 
So I'm going to come at this from a industry development perspective because there's lots of funding programs out there. And I'd preface by saying that, you know, we've had longstanding programs, you know, through the National Research Council and other groups like GNOBC, where they fund a lot of research that builds, you know, foundational science that industry could use. But in my role as an extension person, you know, what we really want to see is, you know, capacity building in the industry so that it is more competitive, I can solve problems and, and capitalize on opportunities. So what I see is that there is a lot of funding programs and, and we've been involved quite a bit. And Chris mentioned like fisheries and agriculture, green technology adoption program and the Agriculture Collaborative Research Development Program. And these are, are great programs. ACRDP, the, the latter of those two, tends to focus on peer research, whereas the first one, FACTAP, tend to focus on basically off-the-shelf, ready-to-go technology that industry gets a little bit of help to purchase. And actually, it was quite a bit of help. And that was actually, you know, cost-shared with the province. So, you know, we would kick in some, the industry would kick in some, and then the majority came in with the federal government. And so I will mention BC Thrift in a minute, uh, the other one that Chris mentioned. But programs like FACTAP were actually, that one in particular was quite transformational in that, you know, on one hand, while it did allow people to have greener solutions and, you know, as we move forward, we're going to definitely need more and more greener solutions to the sector. In BC, for example, we had basically for the shellfish industry is a good example. We had a, a bit of a seed deficit. Most of the seed that was grown by the shellfish industry was coming from outside of Canada. And we didn't have a lot of capacity for seed hatcheries. And so, and, and part of the reason for that is, is that the industry is a good industry, but it's not big enough to support, you know, businesses that are relied solely on sale of seed. However, if that seed supply was to dry up, then it would cause a huge problem. And so through FACTAP, we started supporting the acquisition of made in Canada, you know, bioreactors for the development of algae that are used in shellfish hatcheries. And it really reduced the cost and increased the productivity and improved the quality of algae and running of those hatcheries. And so we bought quite a few of them and actually it made those businesses a lot more profitable. And as, you know, for reasons that are, you know, for another discussion, I guess, you know, that seed supply actually started to wane quite a bit and almost started to fall off. But during that intervening time, we developed capacity in the industry to produce shellfish seed. And it was solely, I think, due to that program. And that was really great. And, you know, there's other examples, like we've tried alternate technologies for salmon production through funding assistance through programs like FACTAP. Now, the BC Salmon Restoration Innovation Fund is, is a much bigger program, but its main focus is on salmon conservation and restoration. Yet it has an innovation component, and so it has funded a few innovation projects. And in particular, one that comes to mind is Innovative Shellfish Handling Program for the shellfish industry to help them pivot to retail. And we have found that we've got to address supply chain issues because of all the recent problems that we've had. And the last comment I was going to make is that all these programs have very specific criteria. And so with so many small programs, that a lot of them come and go it can be really difficult for industry to navigate them. And one of the things that we don't have is fairly big programs for capacity building that sort of have been going on for a really long time and that industry can develop a model for using them. Well, thank you for all those. So which leads me actually to my next question. So maybe Carol, from 
our friends from the other side of the border for those programs? What are some of the key characteristics of those programs in your era that have led them to become impactful? I know they mentioned about having greener solutions, clean technology from our side of the border. What about in the States? Well, the two that I mentioned, and there are other programs in, in the States that are more traditional funding programs, but the two that I mentioned that really have tremendously impacted development and growth of aquaculture in the States, the land-grant university system and these regional aquaculture center programs, they're both driven by industry needs. The priorities in terms of what the funding goes for are not coming out of Washington, D.C., or they're not coming out of the states. They're coming from the industry itself. So within the land-grant system, it's the extension component of the extension specialists that are working with farmers that bring the farmers' needs back to researchers, and they sort of get the researchers interested in understanding the problems, and then researchers are able to target their efforts towards those specific problems from industry. A lot of these tend to be shorter term, but some are medium term, some are are long term kinds of issues. Some of the genetic broodstock development programs that have gone on for years, for example, in catfish and shellfish grew out of needs expressed by shellfish producers in the states through the land grant system. The regional aquaculture centers are even more explicit. They have an industry advisory council instead of an advisory group. The Industry Advisory Council comes together every year or two. They bring in a specific list of the biggest problems that industry is having. And then these are put out and discussed with researchers in terms of whether research has already been done. Is the work already done and farmers just aren't aware of it? Is it researchable? That sort of thing. Does it duplicate projects going on elsewhere? They have that conversation with researchers But at the end of the day, it's the industry that prioritizes the problems and says, this is the number one problem, and this is the first one to be funded. If there's money to do numbers two, three, and four, then let's do that. But the industry ranks those problems. And so when researchers come to the table, so the industry-driven part of it is critical. They know what they need to overcome in terms of being successful businesses, and they're driving that. But the other part of this that is so important is that unless there's some way to bring researchers and extension people and farmers together to really get to know each other and to really understand each other, researchers can chase any number of rabbits down any number of different holes because your research mind just starts asking more and more questions with every bit of new knowledge generated, and they can just continue on those kinds of tracks. Whereas a farmer has immediate things that are needed, a farmer may not understand what it takes to really address the problem from a research perspective either. A farmer may not understand that need for replicates. Why do you have to isolate down to one factor for some problems? And why can't you do it all in one study? And why do you have to do a series of studies? And why do you have to do it under different conditions? Or your results don't match the environment on my farm. And so one of the things with these two programs, the land grant system and the regional aquaculture center program, one of the keys to those successes is that they literally bring these folks together every year and they sit down and talk with each other. And in the early years of the regional aquaculture centers, 
there was a, a lot of miscommunication and some ill will. And I've heard and have seen some shouting matches happen in those. But over time, you know, and they stay there, they have lunch together and they talk with each other. And year after year, they come back and talk with each other. And you build relationships and people start to understand among each other how these different phases have to work. And after a couple of years of this, then they become a very, very effective kind of thing. But building that collaboration so researchers learn how to understand what farmers are saying and farmers learn how to understand what researchers are saying and they're not just crossing each other in the night with jargon and things like that. It's kind of building that collaborative relationship has been really important in all of these And so I think those are two really key factors that have led to successes. Those racks and the land-grant system can point to all sorts of things, the hybrid catfish and the split ponds that have really revitalized the U.S. catfish industry and made it cost competitive and allowed them to produce at a lower cost, all sorts of advancements with oyster genetics and disease management, vaccine development, new feeds, as well as environmental data and information and studies that monitored effects of whether there were discharge or not over periods of years. And so there's a long history of very successful, impactful projects. But to me, those are the two key factors, getting folks talking to each other, researchers and industry and extension people in the middle and learning from each other, but then really addressing whatever the industry problems are at that moment in time and really focusing in on looking for applied solutions that really will work on and do work on farms. So to me, those are the two important things. Well, thanks, Carol. And Chris can answer this question first. So are you able to share one example of a one-off project that was difficult to support because they did not support sector-wide issues or long-term development objectives? I can think of one that uh, was pitched under the ACRDP program where we wanted to look at Guiduc seed production. So there was a number of issues to look at there. You know, what kind of foods are you feeding? What kind of cell densities? Uh, what are your seed stocking densities? What are your flow rates? What kind of substrate are you using? Depth of substrate? So many factors to look at in order to improve Guiduc seed production. And we thought we had built a fairly good proposal and we put it in and through the ACRDP application process and the response came back that it wasn't fish health oriented enough. And as I mentioned earlier, ACRDP really only funds health related projects or environmental interaction proposals. So the proponent had a pretty strong opinion that what they wanted to do was what they wanted to do. And they didn't want to get the work bogged down with looking at health issues. They felt that that wasn't so much an issue for them. They wanted to stick with just looking at those various factors and their impacts on Guidex seed growth and survival. And so basically they ended up pulling out the application from consideration just because what they wanted to do didn't match with the funding priorities or objectives. That's one example I can think of. Sounds good. And Myron, maybe you can give me one more example of that. Well, we we talked a little bit about the fisheries and aquaculture clean technology program. And similar to ACRDP, what Chris was talking about is these terms of reference for the program. 
Now, it's interesting to note that originally, ACRDP did fund production development, but sort of midway a few years ago, for reasons that were never really quite understood, maybe with a budget constraint, they narrowed the focus from, you know, environment, health, and production to just environment and health. And this caused a lot of problems for growers because really what they're interested in is, is growing capacity. And so we had a similar sort of thing that uh, happened in FACTAP where you had to have off-the-shelf technology. And so someone would want to make a new, bigger, better, faster sort of, I'm going to call it a flotation device for a shellfish farm or something. But in order to do that, he had to create a mold. And then he would create the mold and then he can, you know, stamp these things out. And, you know, the project gets rejected because it's not off-the-shelf ready. And it kind of doesn't make sense. And so you have all these rigid requirements. They wouldn't allow any R&D development. The minute you mentioned, you know, research and development, the project got chucked out. So we finally got to a place where we convinced DFO that we needed to allow a certain amount of research development because it was equally as valuable as off-the-shelf technology, especially where people were trying to reduce their environmental footprint. And that's this, this thing about understanding you know, how these funding programs work, what's in scope and what's out of scope. And a lot of times when they're developed, it would probably be helpful to have you know, a little bit more consultation with industry to make sure that you're kind of meeting industry needs. You know, and on that, these are industry-driven, but the best way to make these industry-driven is industry does have to have some skin in the game, as they say. So if industry has to make a contribution, they're only going to make contributions where it really helps develop those projects. And so I'm, maybe it doesn't sound really popular, but I always think that we have to have you know funding come from industry in order to trigger a project. Otherwise, will they take it seriously? Thank you. And Carol, do you have the same, I guess, situation in this two programs you mentioned in the land grant systems and the regional aquaculture center program where it didn't thrive? There have been some issues in some of the centers, but the issues tend to be a little bit different. And one of the issues that they're having now is that we've seen that many universities are are not filling extension aquaculture positions when someone retires they're not choosing to fill them. And so we're losing our extension support staff in the university system. That's been a real glue. The extension folks are the ones out on farms that bring back farmer needs back to researchers. They take researchers out. They help communicate the research results to farmers in language that farmers can understand. And back to a point Myron just made, a lot of extension specialists were helping farms with on-farm R&D work because something coming out of a laboratory may not be ready for commercial production. It has to be adapted to farming conditions and sometimes to specific farms. And that extension function included doing a lot of R&D. So now that we don't have so many extension folks anymore, we're kind of losing that basic communication back and forth. We're losing the capacity to do R&D and take these research results and really test them out under commercial conditions on either on farm trials or in Arkansas, we did something called research verification where farmers would agree to manage one or two ponds according to research recommendations and see if it worked out. So I think in the States, what's happening is the loss of extension personnel is creating some of these problems and we're losing the ability to help farmers do this R&D on farm. 
Thanks, Carol. So my biggest takeaway from our conversation is actually together is better. That has always been, I think, in this industry is a secret sauce. So maybe each of one of you can give me what's your biggest takeaway from our panel today. My biggest takeaway is ensuring that whether it's an R&D funding program or a strictly commercial development funding program, industry objectives and priorities need to come first. If we're not doing something to satisfy their objectives, it's not worth doing. It's got to be commercially relevant and something that they are interested in researching or developing. And the other big take-home message I would say could be summed up in one word, communication. Building that level of trust in the relationship being open and honest about things and ensuring everyone's goals and objectives are being met. And that's best done through communication, communication, communication. (laughs) That's it. Myron, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think Chris took a little bit of my thunder away. I was going to say, I was just following up on Carol's comment about communication, having researchers and industry and agencies get together and talk and talk a lot. And you know, we're fortunate in Canada, and I'm going to put a plug in for the Aquaculture Association of Canada, because this is a long-standing organization that facilitates a meeting every year that brings together aquaculture researchers, aquaculture industry, government people, and the supply sector. And they talk a lot about research, they talk a lot about projects, they talk, they make connections, and it's a fantastic venue to prioritize those issues, but also connect people together that can help one another and have those conversations. And I think if you didn't have that, this just wouldn't work. And I truly believe that. So that's kind of my my biggest takeaway is communication and making sure that everyone is talking so that people can collaborate and synergize their ideas. What about you, Carol? What's your biggest takeaway from our time together? Well, listening to individuals from our neighbor to the north here, what really has struck me is that it's really important for the growth and development of sustainable aquaculture to have agency personnel engage as much as the researchers and farmers and everyone else. And having agency individuals who are knowledgeable about farm realities and interacting as part of that whole communication network and effort is equally important. I think we need more of that in the States, in all honesty. Well, thank you so very much for all three of you for taking the time to speak to us today and to our listeners. You are really in store for a lot of surprises this season because I'm bringing in more panelists to the group. So Mm -hmm. for our next episode, we'll have Jennifer Bushman, Matt Kreis, and Sean Olaflin share with us the highest activity aquaculturists devote their time to in this industry to build long-term relationships to various stakeholders and help sustain their business. Thank you, everyone. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you. And I'll see you next week. Thank you again, Carol, Chris, and Myron. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. 
Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture. <music>